Well, good morning and welcome everyone to today's FS Club webinar on measuring catastrophe bonds and their impact in the, uh, on the reinsurance industry. And our session today is going to be led by a reinsurance expert, Dr. Alan Punter. My name is Robert Pay, and I'm an associate at ZN, and it's my pleasure to be able to chair this event today, but I can only do so thanks to the generosity of our sponsors who allow us to range widely and freely across technology, economics, and finance. My job is to get out of the way as quickly as possible and to hand over to our speaker, but a few housekeeping notes. The slides are available to download in the chat and on the website. After Alan's presentation, we'll be holding a Q&A session, so please make sure to use the chat facility to send your questions in to me. I'll then feed them into the conversation. So over the next 20 minutes, Alan will share some of his insights into cap bonds and how they are affecting reinsurers. And uh, for those of you who are interested, he's actually written a book on the subject as well. So let's um, hand over to Alan now. Uh, good morning, everyone. Um, show my screen. Right, the first thing is a little poll on um, how large you think global insured natural disasters have been to date. Uh, the poll, the first is about uh, Hurricane Katrina, if you remember back in 2005. Um, it's actually been the largest global insured loss to date. So how much do you think it cost in insurance terms back in 2005 values, not trying to revalue it to today's values, how much did Katrina cost the insurance industry? Open the poll, please. Well, in, in true um, FS Club fashion, the, uh, the figures are coming in thick and fast now. And uh, we've got nearly 70% of people have voted. So please use the poll. And um, I'm afraid there are no prizes for the correct answers. Right, it looks like the... Uh... The median and mode, whatever, between 50 and 100, but they're veering towards 100. Uh, actually, pretty good. Not not too far. Go back to the next slide. The um, those are the top 10 costliest global insurance events. The Katrina, which is the one I chose at the top, in uh, 2005 values, 65 billion. So uh, the audience are pretty clued up. Um, revalued to today's value using a fairly crude, probably a CPI index that's near uh, pretty close to $100 billion now. But you can see the, the other top 10 insured events immediately notice a couple of key factors. Virtual hurricanes or tropical cyclones is the official title, but I will use the word hurricane. Um, and uh, just a couple of earthquakes, Northridge and uh, the one in Japan, Takumi, which led to a tsunami. So it's virtual hurricanes, virtual US, because that's where a lot of hurricanes happen and where they tend to hit expensive properties. Earthquakes tend to cause a greater loss of life, primarily because you don't get much warning of an earthquake, whereas most hurricanes in the, in, the, in, in the US and so on, you get two or three days notice. So you can't move your house out of the way, but you can move yourself out of the way. And um, 
people, apart from the exposure of buildings being in Florida and other hurricane prone areas, that's where people choose to live and we can't do much about that. But uh, moving on. Oh, just the most recent uh, earthquake, Turkey, Syria, the likely insured cost in Turkey, um, most recent estimates, the insured cost just for Turkey would probably be in the region of $5 billion. But uh, throughout this, I am tending to talk about insured costs. That tends to mean property damage. Obviously, there's a lot of knock-on effects, and it's completely ignoring the, all the human suffering, loss of life and injuries, life-changing injuries. So, sorry, it's a little bit callous, but we are looking at the financial cost of catastrophes, not human cost. But why does the financing of insured catastrophes have to change? Well, without having getting too scientific about defining insurance catastrophe, it's what we tend to regard as catastrophe is an industry-wide loss that becomes a balance sheet rather than an earnings issue, impacts the capital of the players in the insurance industry. And the turning point, um, wake up call, was Hurricane Andrew back in 1992. Um, there's a, a little picture of it as it hit the coastline of Florida. At the time, the estimated insured cost was $16 billion. The reason that was a wake up call was prior to Hurricane Andrew, previous catastrophe events had tended to be no more than about a billion dollars. Um, probably the only one to exceed that was Hurricane Betsy was maybe near a four billion, but up till then, catastrophes were a billion, a billion plus a bit. All of a sudden, we had a $16 billion event, a real step up in uh, the cost of, of insured events, which has woke the industry up. However, that wasn't the worst news. What if Hurricane Miami had hit Miami rather than missing it by about 20 miles? Then it was more likely it cost $50 billion rather than the 16. And it's about that time that the modeling agencies started uh, looking at events and reports came out. If the 1916 San Francisco earthquake were to reoccur in 1992, the same physical event, but with 1992's superstructure, the buildings extant in 1992, not 1916, that would be somewhere around $100 billion, and floods in Texas could easily cost $40 billion. So how much capital did the reinsurance industry have in 1992 had it been hit by those three independent events? Nothing to have stopped a hurricane hitting Miami. At the same time, there's an earthquake on the West Coast, and Texas was underwater. Well, it easily could have cost 200 billion, those three events. Well, the industry only had $225 billion. Uh, There's backed up by about $25 billion of reinsurance, but obviously completely inadequate amount of capital because it'd have to pay all the other losses, not just these three catastrophes. So how can we get hold of some more risk capital? Well, the insurance industry was capital constrained. We had all these catastrophes, we didn't necessarily have the capital. We looked across to the US well, capital market, particularly in the US, they had the capital, could they take some more risk? Because at the time, the US securities market was worth about $19 trillion. The 95% value at risk was about $125 billion. So about one in 20 trading days, the stock market fell by $125 billion. It was just another bad day in the office. 
$125 billion loss of the insurance stream was getting close to curtains. So there's a, the need or the opportunity to link the two up, to take the risk in the insurance and reinsurance side, match it to capital in the capital markets. And the, the link was insurance linked securities. So it's in the title, insurance linked securities. Um, greatly assisted by the risk tech and assessment technology, I mentioned the modeling firms that beginning to produce models that could predict the costs of earthquakes, hurricanes, and later more other associated perils. And the sell to the capital markets was insurance losses, however catastrophic, were uncorrelated. That rises in interest rates, falls in bonds, whatever, weren't linked to the occurrence of an earthquake or a hurricane. So if there was a higher return, even though catastrophes was higher risk, a higher return, a bit of a higher return, but zero beta or low correlated asset in a portfolio, actually, according to modern portfolio, increased the efficiency frontier. That was the sell and it worked. Um, so what did in the industry do after it had these um, fatality events, these balance sheet events? Well, it needed to get more capital. In the old days, let's say 1992, you know, when before insurance linked securitization really got going, what the industry would do, and this is figures for Bermuda, 1992, after Hurricane Andrew, companies either recapitalized because they balance sheet had been damaged, just raised more capital, or there was a startup, there's a raft of new startup companies, insurance and reinsurance companies in Bermuda, the so-called class of 92. After the next big event, the World Trade Center, um, again, balance sheet event, more capital needed. Some companies recapitalize, there's a great, greater number of startups, but these new instruments, these new insurance-linked securities, cap bonds, and a bit of sidecars, I'll mention sidecars later, came on the scene. And then after the, sorry, I can't see the bit of the slide, these, the path of the screen is covering it. Um, anyway, after the next event, um, Katrina, Katrina Rita Wilmer, the new capital raising was about equally balanced between recapitalization, startups, and if you stick sidecars on top of cap bonds, this alternative form of capital insurance in securitization was again about a third equal. Um, so that sort of slide encapsulates how companies have recapitalized after catastrophes and increasing its alternative capital. There's no evidence of after the latest hurricane, Hurricane Ian last year, that there will be more startups. So how does the cap bond work? Um, there are, the, the book contains various um, history of attempts, partial successes, twists and turns uh, of how the market got going and has now worked and the developments it's gone under. We're just taking an early cap bond to show you the mechanism. Take a sponsor, USAA, that's the US Automobile Association, um, writes auto policies, mainly for current and former military in the US. Um, it's a sponsor. It sets up a special purpose vehicle. I know that has a slightly sour ter term after Enron, but that perhaps a special purpose reinsurer is a better term. It sets up a new reinsurance company called Residential Re in this case, in the Cayman Islands, most of the early cap bonds in the Cayman Islands. Um, and what that 
new insurance, reinsurance company does is issue bonds to the capital markets, it sells securities, raises $400 million in a specific case, and as residential REIT has $400 million, it can write a reinsurance contract to the value of $400 million to USA to cover its losses from a hurricane, and USA pays a premium for that reinsurance contract. So on the left-hand side, residential RE have a one-year 400 million insurance contract against losses from an East Coast hurricane. Um, so insurance on the left-hand side is being transformed on the right-hand side into a security. Um, there's a bit of internal governance goes on. The, the 400 million are put into a bankruptcy remote trust. Um, there's a collateral swap for the counterparty to turn the variable investment earnings into a uh, stable LIBOR type stream and LIBOR plus the spread which comes from reinsurance premium is what the investors in the notes get but their risk their risk they've taken is the principal is at risk um, for which they get paid a coupon if there's no loss at the end of the one year this is a one-year contract at the end of the one year they the bonds mature and they get paid back in full However, if there's been a hurricane of the requisite size during that one year period, the note holders may get back just a partial repayment at maturity, or in the worst case, lose their principal entirely. It's like any other government or corporate bond, get paid a coupon, it's at risk, and at maturity, you get the full or partial or zero payment. Um, so that's the structure of a cap bond. It just requires that little bit in the middle, the special purpose reinsurer, special purpose vehicle to convert securities into insurance. USAA has been one of the major issues of cap bonds over the years. So since 1997, it's issued around 40 cap bonds, one, two or three a year. Now increasingly with multi-year, not just one year, three or five year tenures. And um, so over that period, they've raised over 10 billion of indemnity uh, cover. Um, and as they're multi-year, they overlay, so there's more than one cap bond still in force, and so they have two billion protection force at the moment. I want to now look at a slight more alternative cap bond, and that's one issued by Oriental Land. It's a company, not an insurance company. Their vehicle is called Concentric Re, and what Concentric Re wrote on behalf of Oriental Land is a five-year policy offering $100 million of cover following an earthquake in Tokyo. So, but this is on a parametric basis, which I'll explain on the next slide. Um, the expected loss on this bond was 0.4%. The bonds, it's five-year policy, the bonds paid um, 310 basis points, about seven and a half times the expected loss. And many of the early cap bonds were credit rated to give investors some comfort, typically double B, double B plus region. So it's a credit rated bond paying 310 base points. Um, the key point about this, though, is the parametric nature. Um, it's called concentric re because it's like a dartboard in the middle. In fact, the Oriental Land, the reason for buying this bond is they're the owners of the Tokyo Disneyland Park and they borrow money to build it and they wanted protection if there was an earthquake, not that the rides would fall down, but businesses would stop coming. So it's in effect a non-damaged business interruption cover. So there's on this dartboard, um, all that 
would happen in these parametric bases. So if there was an earthquake, let's say somewhere in that middle circle, size 7.4, just go to the table, Japanese meteorological agency certify there's been a 7.4 in the middle circle, 62.5% payout at midnight, you can write a check, or the concentric re can write a check for 62.5 million. So no indemnity, no fiscal damage, no proof of loss other than the agency certifying there's been an earthquake in the required region. This sort of non-damage business direction cover very difficult to arrange in the traditional market. So the key features of, of cap bonds versus reinsurance, they are securities. And so if you want to deal with them, you need to be a registered securities um, agent. It's not insurance brokers have Brokers do a lot of this, but they have separately registered and approved securities dealing operations within the overall brokerage house. The pricing is linked to the credit, the credit rating of the bond, not the ups and downs of the reinsurance pricing, the sort of market. It's based on credit. They sold us bonds, they have a credit rating, and um, that's what determines the price. And they're fully collateralized. Um, if there was a $400 million loss to USAA, the vehicle residential re had $400 billion to pay the loss in full, similarly with concentric re. There are alternative trigger mechanisms. Indemnity, most of the bonds are indemnity, so they pay as per the reinsurance policy, but there are other possibilities, parametric, as we saw with Oriental down to concentric re. Um, so in the middle are also industry loss indexes, somewhere between indemnity and parametric. They are multi-year. The early years were one years. Now they're more typically three to five-year bonds, three to five-year reinsurance policies issued on the back of the bond. There's some, some have been 10 years. But the key issue here is there are no reinstatement. Um, with concentric reoriental land, five-year bonds, but it could only pay one $100 million loss. Once a first loss is paid, there is nothing left in the kitty for the remaining four years. It's, it's a no reinstatement, which you might get under reinsurance policy, but they're also trading their bonds. They can just be sold, bought and sold on the market. You can't buy or sell a secondhand insurance or reinsurance policy, but these bonds are tradable and are trade dead. So if you've got a bond and it's getting close to maturity and you want the money for something else, you can sell it prior to maturity, if you've got a bond that's exposed to Florida hurricane, and there's a hurricane approaching from the Caribbean, you can sell it to someone else if you can find a mutually agreed price. They are traded particularly prior to major events as people want to rebalance their portfolios. So cap bonds have been issued for a wide range of risks, not just, most of them are probably casually, particularly um, hurricane type events, tropical cyclones, I should probably say, and some earthquake and many other perils as well, but other more exotic risks or secondary risks have been covered, motor operational risks, There's three operational risk bonds covering Credit Suisse that might have been attacked by Greensville, but anyway, um, quite a few on the life and health side of the business, excess mortality, longevity, um, medical benefits, and we've now just seen the first few cyber bonds. They've been issued by corporations, I've mentioned Oriental Land, a corporation not an insurance company, Fever, have issued, did issue a cap bond um, back for one of the earlier World Cups to cover terrorism risk when their traditional reinsurer 
pulled the plug on a policy when they got frightened after the World Trade Center. FIFA went ahead and issued a cap bond instead. New York uh, Metropolitan Transit Authority issued cap bonds after Hurricane Sandy. Hurricane Sandy was officially a hurricane, but when it came on shore, it, was, uh, it, um, it wind speed has slightly dropped and it was only a tropical storm, not officially a hurricane. But the May, so hurricane cover wouldn't have necessarily paid out. But also most of the damage was done by the influx of water, the storm surge that went down into the underground. And that wasn't, <clears throat> was not covered on traditional insurance. But also some corporations, big corporations like Alphabet, the owners of Google, have gone directly into the market to buy their cover, getting it straight from the capital markets rather than going through the chain of insurer, reinsurer, and the various brokers in between, buying their risk cover direct. They've issued by governments and NGOs, California Earthquake Authority, Turkish Capital, Paul Reen UK has issued a couple of bonds, and the World Bank have issued quite a few bonds to cover hurricane-type exposures in the Caribbean for countries that don't have very much insurance cover normally. And they have paid out. Um, the earthquake in Japan, the hurricanes Harvey and Irma, gave rise to a number of losses on bonds. There's been quite a few losses due to California wildfires as well. So the bonds have been proved to work. They have paid out. That's sort of the size of the market, um, the amount of bonds issued, um, now rising to about 40 billion um, outstanding. So the amounts in lighter blue are those issued, the, the darker colour is the amount outstanding because most of the bonds are multi-year, so they roll on for three or five years. So a lot of the current outstanding bonds would have been issued three or five years ago. They haven't yet matured. So over a thousand cap bonds have been issued since we started in 1992, and there's over 80 different sponsors of, of the cap bonds. As I mentioned before, not just insurance, reinsurance companies, but corporations and other government bodies, NGOs and the like. And many of them are repeat or serial issues, like I mentioned, USAA has issued 40 bonds over the period. The sort of multiple paid for these bonds, very much an average, but this, this multiple is the coupon as a multiple of the expected loss of the bond. Because all these bonds go through uh, one of the modeling companies who produced what the expected loss to the bond will be, and the coupon is a multiple of that. And see, so the multiple has fallen over the years as, in fact, as the investor pool has grown and investors get more comfortable with the structures and the perils being covered. The multiple does differ for different, for different perils and different geographies. Um, the multiple will probably be higher for a US hurricane bond because there are so many of them and um, they don't diversify. But if you issue a bond for a non-traditional peril in a, a territory that's not covered, I mean, a couple of Australian bonds that had very low multiple because cap bonds are diversifying to normal investments but an Australian cap bond is further diverse into a US cap bond because um, the, the greater majority of the bonds in an investor portfolio tend to be US linked, particularly Hurricane. So overall summary of what's happening in the reinsurance market, um, 
helped by this growth of insurance link securitization. There's ongoing consolidation of reinsurers and clients and brokers, which leads to organizations when they're bigger, they re retain more risk. And converse of that is they buy less insurance and reinsurance. Insurers and reinsurers are sharpening their portfolios. They're, they're dropping out of particular risk classes, dropping out of particular territories, particularly peak risk. Um, so there's the growth of this alternative risk capital. I've talked about cap bonds, haven't really got time to go into sidecars and collateral reinsurance, but they also play a major part in capital from the capital markets, find its way directly to underwriting risk. The attraction is, say, underwriting risk is diversifying from other investment risk and linking capital to directly to the catastrophe event is a lot more attractive than buying shares in a reinsurance company when you're buying a whole panoply of risks. All the underwriting the reinsurance company does, it's IT systems, it's operational risk, it's investment performance and all the rest. You're just attaching directly to the underwriting risk up the whole company-wide risk. And the money has come in increasingly in recent years from pension funds, and there's many now specialized hedge funds set up to invest in IRS products, either entirely or partially. So what's really happening beneath all this is a segregation of market functions, which I see between the financial risk, the cap bond, and the underwriting capital. Um, so, the, the MGA type managing generation type model. Um, there's, there's no reason why a particular insurance or reinsurance company should be best in class at underwriting, best in class on its IT systems, best in class on its investment performance, and best in class and everything else. Just link together the specialists, the have underwriting specialists in the MGA, investment specialists running the ILS funds, and let them work together. Um, there was a paper 20 years ago, I like anniversaries, a paper 20 years ago that whose theme was consolidation is not the answer, disaggregation is the answer. Um, what I meant in that paper was by disaggregation was this specialization, splitting underwriting from capital provision, letting someone manage the funds and another specialist information do the underwriting. And that's what's happening. There's Companies, for instance, Renaissance Re in Bermuda has its own underwriting operation, but it also manages sidecars and other vehicles for other people. So it provides the underwriting expertise. Other entities provide the funds and residential, uh, sorry, reinsurance, Renaissance Re, get it right. Renaissance Re makes more money from fees now, managing operations for other people than from its own underwriting. So, so I'll go back to answer the two exam questions I set myself. Catastrophes, are they becoming too big? The answer is yes, because we've only touched upon the insured losses. There is a much greater amount of uninsured losses. This has been labeled in more recent years as the protection gap. There's a big difference between the economic cost of a hurricane, an earthquake, or any other major event and the amount that is actually insured. So in you know, extreme cases, Asia, losses, 706. These, these are estimates of the um, probability from risk from the risk assessment models. 
an estimate of 706 billion uninsured as against 70 insured. There's a lot of uninsured risk out there. Um, so catastrophes are bigger than the insurance industry covers. And that's just looking at the property casualty side of life. There's a huge, even larger protection gap on the life side, a huge gap between life insurance, what it covers, and the actual exposure. So insurance doesn't cover all of catastrophes. There's a still a way to go to cover countries where there isn't much insurance and perils that aren't well covered by insurance products. Secondly, are these cats and catastrophe bonds and related animals eating reinsurance lunch? Well, I have to say yes, I'm biased. But that shows traditional capital in light blue. Below that, the alternative capital in sort of grey colour. The line shows the alternative capital market share, the total reinsurance capital, and it's grown to now being about 15% of the total amount of reinsurance is funded by these alternative capital mechanisms, cap bonds, sidecars, collateralized reinsurance, and various other little private deals. So if you want to know more about this, there is a book that I happen to have written, Celebration 25 Years of Insurance Linked Securitization Through 25 Landmark Deals, that sort of takes you through the evolution of this market, why it took its various twists and turns, what worked, what didn't work, how new territories were added, how new perils were added, how new structures were devised. Um, and the main website you can get a lot of information from is called Artemis, www.artemis.bm, Bermudan location, except it's actually run out of Brighton in the UK, um, has a huge amount of news, deals, lists all the virtual the cat bond deals and key features of them, market statistics, conference reports, uh, and uh, it issues newsletters, up updates on news, and it's all free. Um, to point you to one particular item on that under Artemis Live, there's a recording of Artemis had a conference to celebrate 25 years of cat bonds last autumn in London. And uh, the keynote address by Michael Millett, um, formerly of head of all the structured finance operations at Goldman Sachs, now has his own um, Hudson Structured Capital Management, his own hedge fund, um, gave a wonderful keynote on how this market has developed and the challenges and opportunities that face it. And the people, major players in this market, the reinsurance companies, the brokers, other consultants, you look at their websites, they produce regular, usually annual reports on the state of the ILS market. Um, that's what I have to say at the moment. Back to you, Rob. Thank you very much indeed. And um, the, we've got a number of questions that have come in for you, Alan. And uh, first one I'm going to, the first one is from uh, John Adams. And he wants to know which investors in cat bonds would be the major losers in the event of increased frequency of climate events. And do the volume of, of these instruments now uh, have the potential to cause a systemic financial event? Um, I see you take the second one first. Well, I think that's it. The, the, the systemic 
exposed with a very interesting point. But um, a little while back, um, the group of 30, some of you may have heard of, got, got a bit worried about did insurance, did the insurance industry pose a systemic risk to the, to the capital market? So they commissioned a report and wrote it all up because they didn't really understand insurance for insurance. Um, but their conclusion was no, because when you look at it, if the whole insurance reinsurance tree fell out, fell over overnight, be an inconvenience, but financially it wouldn't matter. I mean, going back to those figures I had earlier, you know, the 1992 figures, well, I'm not going to try and inflate them, but 1992 figures, US insurance capital, 225 billion or maybe 250 billion, US capital markets, 19 trillion. Um, you know, yeah, yeah. is not going to rock the capital markets. It, it's your um, it's your bad day in the office uh, point. Yeah. Okay. Um, and uh, a question now from uh, Nikki Holzhausen, um, who thanks you for your insights. How readily would the buyers of these instruments be interested as extreme weather incidents increase and interest remain rates remain high? Um, yeah, there's sort of a positive and negative there, isn't there? Um, yeah. the, 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 the increase in events, um, I would take as a positive for, for, for these alternative forms of, of capital. Um, I mean, the price inspector is not fixed. I mean, you know, new issues can, can adjust according to the credit rating and the increased events were reflected in the risk models that will produce a larger expected loss, which will produce a larger coupon. So, I mean, it, it's, I don't see that as a threat. I see it as an opportunity because um, the performance of the traditional insurance industry, which is obviously its main competition, is not great. Um, the, the amount of capital in the traditional insurance fell back significantly last year because of investment losses, not, not underwriting, but investment losses. And um, there's a recent McKinsey report that said over 50% of this was a global report. Over 50% of global insurance carriers are not making or not covering their cost of equity. Um, the, the insurance industry, unfortunately, sort of um, limps along. That's probably too severe a statement, but um, they need this new capital. And the new capital prefers to come, as I mentioned earlier, come in and attach itself to the underwriting side, not the overall performance of an insurance reinsurance company with so many other intangible risks, uncontrollable risks and investment point. Right. Thank you for that. A question now from Bob McDowell, uh, thinking about catastrophes. Um, did work at bond? Pandemics uh, generally, or are these sorts of events uh, generally excluded from cover? Sorry, you were on mute through most of that question, or I didn't hear it. Sorry, can you repeat it, please? Okay. So, how did this is a question from Bob McDowell? How did cat bonds perform uh, in during the COVID crisis, or are pandemics generally excluded from uh, cover here? Or... Sorry, yeah, yeah, uh, that's good. It's not, it's not a matter of being excluded that uh, you know, cap bonds 
state explicitly what included. So they'd be excluded from most uh, covers by not being included. But the they're, they're World, uh, World Bank through the IBRD has issued several bonds that do cover pandemic. And um, it got close to paying out on the Ebola um, in, in West Africa. Um, but it, one of their bonds has paid out on COVID. Um, so it does, I mean, if, if pandemic is in the bond and the pandemic happens and it reaches the trigger point of so many deaths per 100 population, whatever the trigger in the bond does, it pays. But that raises another important point, and I was thinking about things like pandemics and the um, Caribbean in particular. Um, the, the virtue, sorry, I'm biased, the virtue of a cap bond is particularly a parametric one. The event that happens within a matter of days, those world bank bonds have paid out, the cash is into the economy. And uh, the key is cash in re getting the country's economy up and moving again. It's not waiting two years to file an indemnity claim because you've lost a building. It's cash to into the local economy um, so it can rebuild the infrastructure, the roads, the bridges and so on, so the economy can get moving. That, that prompt payout in those sort of situations is key, not arguing for years to get some full indemnity settlement. Right. Um, and now a, a question from Andrew Ross about whether cities or local authorities uh, have issued cap bonds using their tax income from planning consent, which uh, corporates then pay for. Um, well, I mentioned the New York Metropolitan Transit Authority has issued oh, yeah. a, a cap. Um, cities. Can't think of a city-specific example. That's right. the nearest that's happened. Okay. And um, a question from Hugh Purser about um, uh, the rate of change of when an event like Katrina happens. How how did how do these bonds cope with the the changing cost as more um, damage and uh, losses are discovered? Uh, there's, it depends on the trigger mechanism, because you know, if it's parametric, you can say you know, pretty much overnight the hurricane was of the right strength, it did hit the right bit of coast, whatever. But yes, uh, uh, most of the bonds are, are indemnity, so they follow, you know, follow the form of a reinsurance contract at the front end. Um, you do need to wait for um, a reasonable estimate of the total insurer claims to, to be agreed. Um, just, I can't deny this has caused some problems in the past with a big event. If there's been uncertainty whether the losses reach the trigger points of the bond or, or reach through and reach the exhaustion point of the bond, it does mean you can end up with capital in the um, residential re or consensual re, whatever the vehicle may be, capital trapped in there because you can't pay the bond back on maturity because there's still uncertainty about outstanding losses. That has been a problem in some losses, but many cap bonds might be at the position where you might not have all the insured losses in, but there's been enough to guarantee the exhaustion of the bond. 
and so you can settle. Right, and um, uh, now a question from uh, another question from Bob McDowell: Are cat bonds routinely re-rated uh, on a periodic basis, or are they re-rated in ex in response to external events? Um, I'm going to take that in two parts. The, the, the rating when they're issued is the rating. I mean, that's a rating for the five-year bond or whatever it is, I, I guess, like it on other bonds in the market. The, 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 the way in which the rating changes, it's not quite the same thing. The price changes. I mean, these are sold on a secondary market. And you yeah. can look up on the right website and, and see that, um, that the pricing of a bond has been marked down because there's a approaching hurricane or there's a fear there's an event happens or has happened that may impair the bond so there's a an active secondary trading market and so it's not the rating but the pricing you know can be monitored and monitored okay and uh, a question another question from andrew ross how can global natural capital get valued in ecosystem losses um e.g via the just announced UN High Seas Treaty, which uh, may be asking you something that's uh, very, very new and the market hasn't had a chance to respond to it yet. I think I'd like to say pass on that one. <laughs> right. Well, thanks very much indeed. And um, uh, I think we should uh, we'll, we'll draw that to, to a close. There are a few questions that still outstanding but um, um alan will respond to those uh, individually we've um, we've got your names and there's quite a few technical questions that have come in um so as we end i'd like to thank the fs club sponsors uh secondly i'd like to thank you the audience for your attention and questions and to draw your attention to some upcoming events for the club that can be found on the website. Uh, there are two this week, uh, one about um, China's growth potential after COVID. Um, as you probably all know, they had a very intensive lockdown there, which now seems to be lifting. And a second one this week uh, on uh, the, the transformative tree, which is um, a discussion about agroforestry and how that can help with climate change and create wealth and jobs. Um, and so finally, uh, a thank you to our speaker today, Dr. Alan Punter. And just to remind you that his, um, his uh, freshly minted book is available and uh, that will be uh, on the website as well. So thank you all very much indeed and uh, see you here sometime soon.